There are a lot of things that we take for granted as human beings. Would you agree with that? Like I'm constantly um, aware of that, I think in my own life and just I think in the lives of people in general. And uh, one of the things that in, in church world that I think we may take for granted is, uh, especially if you grew up, um, if you grew up going to church, you know, in the last like 25, 30 years, um, like it might be super normal for you to have guitars and drums and, you know, sing songs that you actually understand. Uh, but for a long time, that was not very common for a lot of churches. Um, in fact, you know, for a very long time, I mean, literally for hundreds of years, it was very common for churches to do a lot of music that was very, very, I don't know the right word, religious or, you know, maybe highbrow or, yeah, I don't know. And, uh, but something happened in the, in the 60s in the, in the U.S. There was this major cultural shift and, you know, the 60s um, produced some great music, Right. There's some good music that came out of the U.S. at that time. And just a lot of things were happening culturally. And, and, you know, downstream effect of that was the church started really having to engage with what it was doing musically. And so in the 70s, um, a a group of uh, followers of Jesus basically started really trying to figure out how to reach uh, a group of people called hippies. (laughs) I like how there's a couple who are like, yeah, that's my people. But the church, some churches started really thinking about like, hey, how can we be intentional and reach this group of people who don't wear t-shirts, don't wear shoes, have long hair, sometimes they don't shower, I've heard. You know, and, and the churches started really thinking, not, not all churches, a lot of churches said, hey, that's, 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 those people need to clean themselves up before they can come in to our church. But there was a small group of followers of Jesus in Southern California that really started thinking about that and trying to engage with like, how can we reach this, these young people for Jesus? And so one of the ways that they did that, they started, they started asking a lot of questions about, about music. And so um, out of that, they, they, you know, became a contemporary music movement. And so churches started singing songs with drums and guitars. And all of a sudden um, one church, for instance, it's, it was a Calvary chapel in Costa Mesa in Southern California had thousands of people start showing up and they did baptism services at the beach where hundreds and hundreds of people would get baptized. And out of that time, our church, the vineyard, the movement that we're a part of, the vineyard kind of was birthed out of that same time. And the founder of the vineyard, one of the, one of the first, I guess, primary leaders of our church movement was a man by the name of John Wimber. Some of you have heard of John Wimber. Um, the way that I describe John Wimber is in my opinion, after studying tons of different church leaders and theologians and pastors, is I think that John Wimber um, was probably one of the most influential church leaders in the last hundred years. In fact, many church historians have said the same thing. A lot of the things that now every church does are a lot of it comes from the influence of John Wimber. So like if you like to have contemporary music or if you like having this idea of come as you are, how many of you like that value? Just we said come as you are, like some of you literally got up and you didn't put on any clothes, you came to church with your pajamas on, you're like, I like our church is all about come as you are. So if you like those values, those were birthed out of that time and space. And so, um, you know, basically John Wimber has this, has this indelible impact on the wider church. And now I've traveled all over the world, literally 
in Kenya, Africa this last year in August. I'm with all these vineyard leaders who are Kenyans and they're sharing how John Wimber impacted them. A couple of years ago, I was in New Zealand and we heard from dozens and dozens of people about how John Wimber had impacted them. And my point is not to say we should worship John Wimber. I wanna be very clear here. We should worship Jesus, amen? But I do wanna honor someone that I think God raised up to prophetically speak to the church. And John Wimber is one of those people. But part of his story that's really fascinating to me is, is uh, wrapped up with his idea of, of church. Because what happened is John Wimber was actually a, beber, a member of the band, The Righteous Brothers. Anybody in the place like The Righteous Brothers? All right, they're also hippies. Just wanna point that out. <laughs> um, so John Wimber is not a Christian. He's a, in his own um, you know, testimony, he would say he was a, a pagan. He had no religious background at all. He was involved in drugs and alcohol and just partying it up and doing that whole thing. And then he, he came to faith. And his story is that he started going to church. And it, it, when you read his, his biography, it's hilarious because he's like going to church. And he's like, none of this makes any sense to me at all. And, and in fact, the first Bible study he ever went to, he says he sat there smoking cigarettes, listening to them talk about the Bible and, and he was just baffled by it. And then over the next 15, 20 years, John becomes a leader in their church that he was going to. Um, he's leads, there's literally thousands of people in Southern California that will say that John Wimber led them to Christ personally. Um, he's this really big influential guy, but one of the things that happened to him that shaped his whole uh, approach to the church was a conversation he had in, in New York. And so John was wrestling with this, this question of like, what kind of church should we try to create? You know, what kind of church should we try to be? And what happens is, is John is in New York and at that time he's doing a lot of consulting for churches. He's helping other churches figure out how to grow. And he, he calls a taxi, you know, raises his hand, the taxi stops and he gets in and they're driving. And any of you ever been to New York? No? I'm just gonna tell you right now, if you ever have an opportunity to go to New York um, and drive in a taxi cab, it is like going on an amusement park ride. It is crazy. I mean, it's like all over the map. You're just like the whole time, I'm like, I'm gonna die. I am going to die. And, and a lot of New Yorkers are very, very rude and they're not even trying to be rude. They're just so like, it's just, there's a billion people there and it's very short and matter of fact. And so he's in this taxi cab trying to get a, dry, a ride somewhere. And as they're driving, the driver of the taxi cab sees a bus that has a whole bunch of Korean lettering on it and it cuts him off. And this taxi cab driver just goes crazy and starts cursing this, this, uh, this bus and saying how terrible it is. And John um, just happened to know that the bus was actually owned by a Korean Presbyterian church. And he said, oh, that's a church bus. And the guy then went off and said a whole bunch of other things because it was a Christian bus. It's like, all oh, that, those Christians, blah, blah, blah. And so John was just listening to him and then they stopped and he got off and he was gonna get out and he turned around to pay the, the taxi cab driver with his, with his $20 bill, he handed it and the guy grabbed it and John wouldn't let go. And he said, hey, I just got a quick question for you. You know, if you, if you were to go to a church, what kind of church would you go to? And then the taxi cab driver started saying, well, if I was gonna go to a church, which I totally wouldn't do, but if I was, I would go to a church that was friendly and kind and 
welcoming and help people, and he listed all these different things. And then John let go of the $20 bill and stepped back, and the taxi driver took off, and, and John thought to himself, even the world knows what the church is supposed to be. Even the world knows what the church is supposed to be. And that, that encounter had a major impact on John because from that point on, he, he started thinking about the church in the ways that, like, what does the church, what's the church's mission? What's the church supposed to be about? What are we supposed to be doing was the question that he started wrestling with. And, and then he would later on, he would ask this question. He would say, if your church no longer existed in the community that you're in, would anybody notice a difference? And that is a very good question. Would anybody notice if our church was no longer here? And I love that question though uh, about church because what Wimber then went on to do is he talked a lot about what kind of church would he join? And just this morning, I wanna just, before we jump into today's text, I want us to think about this question of what kind of church do I wanna be a part of? I'm just, this is just my opinion. This is, this is, I have not done a poll. I haven't had people fill out connect cards, but I wanted to share with you for a few minutes here what I think about you know, the idea of what kind of church I want. Um, what kind of church I'd like to be a part of, what kind of church I think we should try to be in. You know, I wrote a, a down a whole bunch of different uh, characteristics and I wanted to share them with you for a moment here. This is by no means exhaustive. As I was sitting here this morning during music, I was thinking of many other characteristics, but one, I think I would wanna be a part of a biblically thoughtful church. And what I mean by that is that we take scripture seriously we would say that the Bible is our final authority and we would think about how it is applicable into the lives of our, of our community. Uh, I would want to be a part of a welcoming church that's friendly and loving. Uh, I think we just said we wanna be a worshiping church and we mean not just singing. I think I'd wanna be a part of a missional church, a church that um, is outward focused, meaning we both re reach people in our own community in Red Bluff and the surrounding communities, as well as globally, we want to impact other nations. I also would like to see that we are a charismatic church. And what I mean by that, because that word charismatic means so many different things to different people, but I wanna use that word in a technical sense, meaning that I do believe that the Holy Spirit is still at work today. I don't think the Holy Spirit stopped in 90 AD. I think that the Holy Spirit is still at work today. I think that God still heals people supernaturally. I think the Bible teaches us that we should pray for the sick. I also believe that um, the gift of prophecy, meaning that someone can hear from the Lord for another person, I think that's still available to us as well, um, that we can be empowered. But I also wanna just point out, charismatic church is also connected to a biblically thoughtful church, meaning that the Bible actually prescribes ways for us to live this stuff out. So it's not a free for all, amen? Okay, if, if you've been around charismatic churches, you should read into that, okay? Um, I also think we want to be a sacramental church. I want to be a part of a sacramental church. Again, that's the language. Meaning that the Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper is something that Jesus taught us and that we should do it regularly as the Bible teaches. I also wanna be a part of a truth-telling church where we, actually talk about truth. We talk about, about, about you know, what the kingdom of God means. We talk about being truth tellers though, both relationally and in our community. 
And then also, I really want to be a praying church, a church that prays. And there's a lot of an et cetera there. I mean, there's so many things that we could add to this list. Are you with me? I mean, like, I think it'd be safe to add the word safe. Like, we want to be a church where it's safe to explore faith. Like, could you imagine being a church where it's safe for someone who has no idea what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but is just interested in it? They can come here and, and it's safe for them to explore and to ask questions alongside someone who's been a follower of Jesus for 55 years and knows the Bible inside and out. Wouldn't that be beautiful to have a church that has this ability to balance those tensions? I think it would be. And so those, those I don't know, attributes and characteristics have really, really shaped the way that I think about, about church. So we've been in this sermon series for the past month on spiritual gifts. And we've been talking about these different, different, I don't know, attributes and characteristics that the Bible teaches in relation to spiritual gifts and how we're supposed to live them out. And, and I, I think under, underneath, under, the undercurrent of this sermon series, though, again, is this, this idea that I have, and I think many of us in this room share, you're, not, you're probably here because you share this commitment to wanting to become a church that lives this stuff out. And that's part of why we do this thing every week, right? We don't just meet for the sake of meeting. There's intentionality behind it. And, and I tend to like sermon series rather than just talking about random things every Sunday. And the reason why I like that is because I like being able to spend time unpacking things and wrestling with things and trying to not just do one shot, um, I guess, you know, highlights of things, but let's really dig into topics and, and think about the full range of texts of scripture that address it and talk about how it applies into our lives. And what we've done this month is we have established a number of things. As we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've worked our way all the way to the end of that chapter and we jumped into 1 Corinthians chapter 13 last week. And we've established a number of things, four things I think we've established looking at scripture. And the first one is that everyone who follows Jesus has spiritual gifts. So no one in this room can say, well, I don't have any. I don't have spiritual gifts. And I know some of you, maybe that's what God's been wrestling with you on, but no one can say that. According to the Bible, everyone has spiritual gifts if they're a follower of Jesus because they have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. Secondarily, we realize that spiritual gifts have been given so we can build each other up. Like God gives spiritual gifts to you and I in order to build up other followers of Jesus and to carry out God's mission of, of extending his kingdom all over the world. Another thing that we have realized hopefully is that no one person has all the spiritual gifts. No one person has all the spiritual gifts. Years ago, I was, I was new to pastoring world and we were pastoring in this church in Northern Wisconsin, this small little church. And, uh, and when, when churches don't have pastors, what I've, what I've realized and what I've experienced is that lots of itinerant traveling ministers want to come through. And our church had not had a pastor for a while. And so this guy had heard that our church didn't have a pastor and came and he found out that they did have a pastor and he came up to talk to me. He's like, hey, I, I'd like to come and do some ministry here. I was like, oh, okay, uh, what's your name? <laughs> and he told me his name and he was apostle so-and-so. And I was like, oh, sweet. 
And then he said, I'd like to come to your church because I can make sure that your church has all the spiritual gifts because I have all the spiritual gifts. I was like, wow, that's amazing because the Bible actually teaches the very exact opposite thing, that there's no single person that has all the spiritual gifts. And that's why we have to have every single person functioning in their gifts because that is how we are a healthy church body. Needless to say, he did not speak at our church, okay? But I think that that's something we need to realize is that not every person has the spiritual gifts, but everybody in here has spiritual gifts and that's why we all have to, to work together. And then what we did last week is we discovered this fourth thing and it's this, that love is the context for all spiritual gift expressions. And there's a lot I could say about that, but let me just break it down like this. There's this huge list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, a lot of them. And some of them are super controversial. Like I know that there's people in this room who have questions about the gift of tongues or speaking in tongues or speaking in unknown languages. Some of you are like, yeah, I do it all the time. And others of you are like, what in the world is that? And there's other gifts that are maybe something that you're not familiar with. And here's, here's what I think Paul's saying is he's saying, whatever spiritual gift it is you have. So helps, encouragement, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophecy, healing, supernatural miracles, um, administration, teaching, whatever gift you have, it has to be done as an expression of love. That's, that's the context. Paul makes it very clear. So like we all gather together and we're supposed to do church in the context of love, 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 love. Now next week we're gonna start our Advent celebration. And so we're gonna be talking about Advent for the month of December, but today we're just gonna go ahead and spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're gonna look at just at three verses and we're gonna talk about the application of how this fits. And we're probably gonna come back to this passage in January. But let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse, verse four. This is what the apostle Paul says. He says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. And so Heavenly Father, would you now engage our hearts and our minds as your spirit continues to be present with us? Would you speak through me and speak to each one of us in this room the things that we need to hear, whether it's consolation, encouragement, hope, conviction, challenge, Lord, if you need to provoke us, if you need to stir us, if you need to nudge us, or if you need to drag us, Lord, whatever it is that we need, 
We pray that you would have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we are honest with ourselves, and we're looking at this text of scripture, I have a feeling that um, as we look at this passage, we will realize two things. Okay, everybody read that passage with me. I think the first one is this. This is a very clear description of what love looks like. It's probably the clearest we can get as far as like wanting to know what love looks like, right? Like how does this get applied? I mean, love is patient, love is kind. And any of you ever heard this passage at a wedding? Yeah, it's like, I mean, I can't tell you how many weddings I've done where this is the requested text of scripture. And so I don't think this is, I just think it's probably one of the most helpful texts that lists out and lays out what it looks like. Now, I don't think this is a definition for love though. Like these are more, more likely the, the characteristics or the qualities or the application for what love is. Last week we talked about what love is and we said that love is working for and seeking the best for the other person regardless of whether it is good for you. We've talked about how the Bible teaches us that love is, is something where you, you demonstrate it regardless of whether it comes back to you, which is the way that the world teaches love. And so I think that if we're talking about love, we can realize that the challenge of love is that, is that first, this is the clearest in the Bible, this is the clearest you know, passage of scripture that tells us exactly what love looks like. Can we all agree with that? It's pretty, pretty clear, right? The second thing though, I mean, like, I mean, I really do. This is obviously such an influential text. It makes its way into every wedding and it's on so many Hallmark cards, right? It's like, oh my gosh. So that's the first thing is that it's a clear description of what love looks like. The second thing is this, this is perhaps the most challenging practical summary and description of love in the Bible. It is so challenging. Like reading it, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Here's what I mean. As I've sat and meditated on this passage this week and I've read it every day, I have come to realize just how unloving I am. Like I'm not a very loving person, being honest right now. This week as I sat in coffee shops and I sat in my office, looking at this passage, I realized I'm not very patient, I'm not very kind, I'm definitely jealous at times and I can be very rude, especially prior to having coffee. I like to have things go my way, and I, I think I'm irritated 18 hours of the day, and I sleep for six, okay? Like, as I'm reading this, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Um, I have a list of the ways I have been betrayed that is a mile long, and I actually get happy sometimes when people get what I think that they deserve. I want to give up on relationships regularly, and I feel like I'm constantly battling losing faith, hope, and I feel like some circumstances I am in will never, ever change. And so when I think about that, in contrast to what we just read, I'm like, wow. The best word to use is failure. I'm like, man, I am just, I'm failing at this whole love thing. And I don't wanna make light of this to suggest that it's okay to be unloving, because I, I, I'm not saying these things to like, see, I'm unloving, it's totally okay. That's not what I'm saying, okay? It's not what I'm saying. Because I do think that it is not okay to be unloving. I think we need to regularly tell ourselves that we need to love because God has called us to love. We need to constantly be meditating on passages of scripture like this because there's something to this 
this invitation that we have to be loving people. But as I've reflected on just how unloving I can be, um, I have also become extremely aware of how loving God actually is. And so I, I sat yesterday in, in Starbucks and I was drinking coffee and reading this passage over and over again. And, you know, it just was like, oh my gosh, this is so, you know, this is like a really high standard. I mean, listen to these words again, okay? And close your eyes for a moment. Let's, last week somebody texted me and said, thank you for the therapy session. And I said, you're welcome. <laughs> and this maybe will function as that way. Just close your eyes and listen to this. Listen to what Paul writes. And think about how you're doing in relation to these words. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. So with your eyes closed right now, the question is how are you doing at being a loving person? How are you doing at being a loving person? Did you know that when people um, meet with counselors and therapists and pastors and those counselors, therapists and pastors ask them the following question that they give a, a very interesting, consistent answer. So the question is, right now, if, if you had to imagine what God thinks about you, what would be some of the words that you use? So most people use two words. They say that they think that God is disappointed in them or they think that God is angry at them. That's the consistent answer that people give is, well, if you wanna know what I really think, I think God is pretty disappointed with me. God is pretty angry with me. And that, that's from studies and polls. And I'm telling you, after 20 plus years of pastoring, that's my experience too. When I'm like, hey, what, like, what, what do you really think God thinks about you? I had one person one time tell me that they couldn't come to our church because the minute that they walked through the doors, our entire church would fall down. And I was like, you do not know who goes to our church. Like, there's some, there's some messed up people here. And I'm one of them, you know, like, but that's the, their assumption. And, and they, they also, this one friend of mine one time told me before he came, became a Christian, um, he, he assumed that God was a, his words, a cosmic killjoy. And that God was, was in heaven holding lightning bolts ready to throw them down at us because he was so angry with us. And I was like, I like that word cosmic killjoy. That phrase is really a good phrase. I'm gonna steal it. But I find that interesting is that when, when many people think about how God feels about them, their, their primary orientation or idea or, or feeling is that God is disappointed with them and he's angry at them. He's disappointed and he's angry at them. I, I just find that very fascinating. And when you think about that question of what do you assume God feels when he thinks about you, I think the way that we answer that question really highlights 
either our understanding of who God is or it highlights our misunderstanding of who God is. Now, I wanna be really honest. It's not that we don't live our lives in a way that could disappoint God or make God angry. Can we all acknowledge that? Like how many of you are just, when, when you heard 1 Corinthians 13's you know, model for love, you recognize that there's a few areas of your life that you're not living up to it. Did you? It's like, oh, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm not doing very well. <laughs> like irritable, that's the worst one for me. Like I'm always irritated. Like I take pride in that, right? Anybody else willing to admit that you're irritated a lot? Yeah. I'm hungry all the time, first of all, okay? Like that's gotta be part of it. But I mean, when we look at that passage, it's like, oh my gosh, love is patient, love is kind. It rejoices whenever justice takes place. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of things in that passage that seems really, really challenging for us to consider. And, and so it's not that we don't live our lives in a way that could cause God to be disappointed or angry at us. I, I mean, I think if we're honest, um, surely we do. Surely we do things that, that would cause God to be disappointed and to be angry. I mean, I just can't get around that. But listen to me this morning. Listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians. Okay, and just think about this. He says, once you were dead, okay? He's talking to the people living in Ephesus who were now part of the church. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, obeying the devil. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. Whoa, tell us what you really think, Paul. Right? I mean, it's, it's we're dead, we're sinners, we're, we're objects of God's anger. He's so disappointed in us. But, but listen to this. He says, we were just like everyone else, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. But God being so rich in mercy and because he loved us so much, despite the fact that we live our lives in a way that could cause God to be very angry and disappointed, but God loves us. And so this is the, this is the thing that I realized um, this week. So even though I and you, I'm assuming, can be unloving and we can really struggle to live up to Paul's teaching on love. Are you with me? So can we all, can we all say, even though we can be impatient and unkind, even though we can be jealous and boastful and proud or rude, even though we can demand our own way and we can be constantly irritated and we can keep a long laundry list of things that have been done to us, even though we can do those things, even though we can struggle to live out what love actually looks like. I had this epiphany this week. 
We are not defined by our inability to love. We are defined by God's ability to love us. Just think about that for a minute. That's the gospel, isn't it? The good news of the kingdom is that even though I cannot live up to these, these qualities and characteristics and, and, and ways of doing life, even though I can't do that, God continues to love us and continues to invite us into the very center of his kingdom so that we can do those things by the power of the spirit. I mean, it is, it's really good news for us. We are not defined by our inability to love. We are defined by God's ability to love because we are defined by God's love for us. And I wanna put this in the context though, because here's where I know some of you may be like, well, it seems like the Bible does teach that God hates sin and he is angry at, at sin and he doesn't want us to live that way. Can I just tell you, yes, amen? The Bible does teach that. The Bible teaches that sin, which is simply missing the mark, it's not living in a way that God intends for us. That's true, okay? And if we're not following Jesus, if we're not under grace, then what we need to do is we need to come under the shadow of his wing so that these truths can become um, central to our identity. And that's the whole point of following Jesus is that when we say yes to Jesus, we also simultaneously are saying no to the ways of the world. And we're constantly living lives where we take texts of scripture like this and we say, listen, I'm not good at this. Can, there, can anybody in this room admit that you're not a very loving person, just being honest, that you struggle to do that sometimes? Even if it's once a week, okay? If we can admit that, then we also have to admit that we need God's help, don't we? We need God's help. And that's what I think these texts of scripture do for us, is they, they position us, if we're, if we're willing to engage and wrestle with how this applies to our lives, what this text does is it positions us in a way to start asking God to help us to become more patient, the most dangerous prayer ever, right? Like, Lord, make me more patient. Oh, okay. <laughs> Flat tire, <laughs> right? I mean, it's true. It's like, oh my gosh. I, people like tell me that all the time. Like, oh, Luke, I'm really feeling spiritual these days. And I'm really just praying that God would give me more patience. And I'm like, before they get that word out, I'm like, no. It is that praying for God to help you become more patient is such a dangerous prayer. Such a dangerous prayer. But in the same way that anything that God invites us to can be really challenging really hard and really, really impossible in our own strength. This is what I've learned. As I've learned that those things that God calls us to that seem really, really hard, really, really challenging, really, really impossible, they are. They are totally that. But if we ask for God's help and we begin to surrender more and more of our lives to the Holy Spirit's guidance and presence and power, those things become possible because they're not being done by us, they're being done, God, through us. Amen? Let's stand up together. Something that 
struck me this week is, it's like, uh, I don't even know how to put it into words. I'm gonna try, but I, it's like more of a feeling or a, um, just an awareness is that I, I really do believe that love is the center of Christian spirituality. Um, I think that love is the, it's interesting, Paul's gonna tell us that love endures. So like all the spiritual gifts, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping you heard, Paul said that we're supposed to desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. He's gonna say that again in chapter 14. He's gonna say, desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. And so let's just say we're all being obedient to scripture and we're saying, God, please give me more gifts so I can bring glory to you and help other people experience your kingdom and help other people know you or whatever it is you're doing, okay? It says that, but it says that the spiritual gifts will actually cease, but love endures. Love is a, an, an eternal thing. True love lasts forever. Lasts forever. True love lasts forever. And that's why I have no reservations saying that love is the center of Christian spirituality. It's supposed to be our identity. It's supposed to be the thing that people recognize in us. It's supposed to be a marker. But here's the question I have. So, and again, I don't wanna indict all of you. I, there's, I could stand up here and go all over this room and tell you how there's many of you that are loving people. Like, I don't think that you're a jerk, okay? It's like, don't go home and be like, yeah, my pastor told me I'm a jerk. No. I know that there's many people in this room that are super loving and but I also know that if we're honest, we're not always that, right? We struggle with that. We wake up on the wrong side of the bed or whatever. Here's the thing. I just wonder though, if, if this question might be a question that we need to wrestle with. Is it possible that one of the reasons why we don't love others well is because we haven't yet been transformed by the very love with which God has given us? Like, is it possible that you and I aren't very gracious or merciful because we do not fully comprehend how much grace and mercy has been given to us? So there's this parable in Matthew uh, 18, um, and it's, it's, a really, it's a really interesting story that Jesus tells. And what he does is he says, in Matthew 18, he says that um, basically, he says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with all the servants who had borrowed money. And so, you know, Jesus says, hey, this is king. He decided to make everything flush out. So he has all these people that owe him money uh, come to him. And so one servant comes to him and he says, hey, listen, you owe me millions of dollars, millions, millions of dollars you need to pay up. And the guy's like, well, I don't have it on me. I need a little bit of time. Please, please have mercy on me. And he begins to beg and the king forgives his debt and lets him go. He just lets him go. And then Jesus says, that very servant though is walking along and he comes in contact with the person who owes him a couple hundred dollars. And he's like, hey, you need to pay up. And that person says, is there any way that you could extend a little bit of grace my way? I don't have the money right now. And the first servant says, no, 
he has him arrested, he has him put in prison and beaten until he pays up. And Jesus' whole point of using this, this story is to, like, I, I think in a sense to show us a mirror of who we are. And who are we? Is we are the first servant. We're the first servant. Like if you truly knew all the things that you've ever done wrong, then you probably would know that you don't deserve grace. Like you didn't, you don't earn it, right? Like I got a laundry list of things that I do on a regular basis that I'm not great at, that are failures. And I know that if, we, if we're aware, we know what sin does is it, it's, it's, it's a bad thing, right? And here's the good news. Jesus looks at us and he forgives us, cancels the debt, paid in full. And so in light of that reality that we've been given grace and mercy, what should be our way of interacting with other people that we come in contact with that also owe a debt? We are supposed to extend grace, mercy, and love, amen? And so love is patient. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not act jealously, it does not boast, it is not proud or rude, it does not demand its own way, it is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Let's pray. So Father, I pray now that, Lord, these characteristics and attributes and ways of living would become the very thing with which you intend, that we would be known as people of love. And so God, the obstacles that prevent us from being more loving, we need your help with. Lord, we need to experience healing even So with everybody's eyes closed and heads bowed right now, I just wanna share a, a couple prayer invitations for, for us. As I, I've been thinking this the last couple of days about why and when and how I struggle to be loving, um, I, I just noticed that there's obstacles, like there's things that, that pop into my mind well, I, I don't love because dot, dot, dot. You know, like this thing happened to me. And there's a real strong connection um, from unforgiveness and unloving. That's something that probably most of us are aware of. And this morning as I was praying, um, I just had this sense that one of the reasons why a number of you are unable to experience love is because you have not yet come to terms with the truth that God forgives you, that God 
loves you and he's forgiven you. And, and that struggle is, is keeping you from knowing God's love. And then secondarily, I, I just had the sense that there's a number of us in this room that when we think about the people that we struggle to love, and I know that you are thinking of someone right now, if this is for you, that you know exactly who I'm talking about. Part of the reason why you have been unable to love them and extend love to them is because you haven't forgiven them. And you're just holding on to pain and hurt and feelings of betrayal and feelings of disappointment. And those feelings are causing you to be unable to extend love. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray right now for those things. And I don't think this is gonna be a quick fix. I don't think it's gonna be like a get zapped at a conference and you're healed and now you're fixed. What I think is today God is inviting us, he's inviting us to begin to do the hard work of addressing those pains and those hurts so that we can forgive, so then we can extend love. And so some of that, some, what that means for some of you is you need to sit down and talk to somebody. Some of you need to probably sign up to see a therapist and to process this a little bit. And some of you really need to sit and spend some time praying and asking for God's guidance. And so God, I pray now, and when it comes to doing the hard work of dealing with past pains, past hurts, unforgiveness, disappointments, betrayals, Lord, things that have been done to us or done around us, God. Lord, perhaps you wanna to heal today. You wanna to bring a supernatural healing. And, and if so, Lord, thank you. But more often than not, it, it, in my experience, it seems like it is a process that we begin. And so I pray right now that everybody in this room would be able to identify the next step. That you, you would just speak to us right now. You would, you would put into our, into our heart, into our mind, what the, the first thing we need to do when we get home is. What's the first act that we need to take in order to address these things? us to continue to set our, our gaze upon Jesus, that you would help us to center our, our lives, our, our church community, our relationships, our, our jobs, Lord, on the reality of Jesus and the love with which he lived. And so, Lord, we pray for these things to take place by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we now transition from being in a space of, of worship, that you would go with us as we go into the world around us, and that we really truly would be people who are known for our love. I pray this in Jesus' name.